Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. I'm Marcus Grodi, your host for this program, and we're coming to you from the studios of the Coming Home Network International. Thank you for joining us. Especially thanks to some of you that are brand new to the program. If you'd like to find out more of the things we've done, go to deepinscripture.com or you can go to chnetwork.org, which you can find out about all the work of the Coming Home Network. Uh, all the old Journey Home programs are connected here, as well as the old Deep and Script, six years of Deep and Scripture programs and lots of resources and connections. And the purpose of the Deep and, of the Coming Home Network is to, uh, to network Christians on the journey, uh, coming into a deeper relationship with Christ and His church. And a great number of us in the Coming Home Network uh, have been on a journey uh, to a place that we hadn't didn't intend that we'd ever go or even wanted to go, but because of our love for Christ as a gift of grace, our hearts and mind were open to the fullness of the church that he established and with great joy, we wanna share that. And so thank you for joining us on this program. And those of you that have been with us before, thank you for your emails and your comments. If you're listening to the program and you'd like to comment, please go to questions. Send us an email at questions at deepinscripture.com. This particular series of Deep in Scripture programs, we're entitling Hard Verses, and we're looking at the guests that will join us. I've asked, what's a hard verse of Scripture that, for many people, it, it might be a verse they avoid because they have it an explanation. It doesn't fit within their theology. And to a certain extent, because there's so many theologies in the Christian world many of which are, are completely contradictory from the other. Uh, almost any verse can be a hard verse for somebody. And so the question is, how do you know what's true? What's the true interpretation? That's part of what we like to uh, focus on in this program. I've invited to join us today uh, a wonderful Catholic writer, witness for the faith, Mike Aquilina. I know many of you who are, are readers uh, are on the internet, watch television and rate Catholic television and radio are familiar with Mike Aquilina. One thing you may not know is he's uh, a, a ghost writer for, for many, many writers. So a lot of times you're reading somebody else and you don't know you're reading Mike. I mean, that's, I just don't get that, but that's a gift that Mike has. And uh, so first of all, Mike, welcome to Deep in Scripture. Hey, thanks for having me, Marcus. It's 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 great to be back with you. It is. It's it's a one the bad thing about well, it's a good thing about the world that we live in and our Christian world uh, and the writing and speaking and we we make friends with people we don't get to see each other very often. And of course, the beauty now with this modern technology, I can look and see you there in your study. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks, Mike. You can. It's a mess. <laughs> oh well, uh, that's one of the reasons why so many of the fans of the Journey Home program are glad that we, technology hasn't moved so far that I can see through the camera into their living rooms. Uh, <laughs> but we do feel like family, and it's great to have you join us, Michael. Thank uh, you. Just for the audience, if you go to fathersofthechurch.com, fathers, plural, of the church.com. So fathers of the church is one word, fathersofthechurch.com. You can find out more about Mike and what he does and his writings and his speaking opportunities. He's written a number of books on the early church fathers. In fact, you also, your most recent, one of your most recent books, well, tell him about it, Mike. You said it was the seven revolutions, I think. Or 
Right. Seven revolutions. You know, how how Christianity changes the world and can change it again. And it focuses on uh, the, the witnesses, the witness of that first generation and the generations right after that, the time of the early church fathers, uh, when uh, when when Christianity began uh, to upend the old order, to change the way people thought about the world, about themselves, about their neighbors and, and made the world a better place. I think we forget how it was before Christianity came along, you know, and we can't afford to forget that because when we do, we slide back into that world and it's not a pleasant place. You know, there's a irony here um, that many, many Christians on the one hand make a big deal out of the, the, uh, the change, the discontinuity that they believe happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And their focus is on Old Testament church, Judaism, all of those rituals, and then a New Testament church that has no rituals, no hierarchy, uh, no traditions, but basically gave us a book called the Bible, and then freedom of worship, freedom of interpretation. And you hear that amongst a lot of evangelicals or a lot of independent Christians. So they would emphasize that there was a great revolution, but the irony is they're really missing the true revolutions that happened through the early church fathers because, and I'm, I think you'll agree that in fact, there is no discontinuity between the Old and the New Testament church. There's a complete continuity in everything except those revolutions that you're talking about in your book. That's right. That's right. Uh, the, the real revolution was that the religion of Israel, the religion of the one true God, the revelation of the one true God was taken out. The walls were blown out and it was taken out to the Gentiles and uh, to the very ends of the earth. Uh, and it was taken out with its own ritual, with its own ritual system, with its with its own hierarchy that was very much in continuity with the old the old order. Uh, uh, we see that even uh, in the early chapters of the Acts of the Apostles, where you know on, on Pentecost, the birthday of the church. Uh, we don't suddenly see everybody leading, everybody preaching, everybody healing. What we see is Peter and the apostles, you know assuming these leadership roles, preaching to the people, baptizing, healing in, in the name of Jesus Christ. And many people were converted that day, you know? So there, there's, there's real continuity there between the Old Testament and the New. But I'll tell you what, this was a surprise and something of a shock to the system of Greco-Roman paganism. Yeah, our Lord said, uh, let me find it here. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, in fact, that he was not changing everything, right? right. He was not throwing it all out, starting over from scratch. Um, right now, I'm trying to get my Bible to the right passage. Sorry, my friends. Uh, Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, the point is that there's nothing in any of the teachings of Christ where, where there's this great discontinuity from the old to the new in terms of the church, in terms of atonement, in terms of even sacrifice. It was fulfilled. There was a modification, 
but not a fragmentation. In fact, what he was focusing on is living our faith out. That's right. That's right. And when the apostles and when the apostolic fathers and when the later fathers went out and preached to the people, proclaimed Jesus Christ, their scriptures were the scriptures of the Old Testament. Because the, uh, you know, in that first generation, the New Testament documents were still in production. They were not widely circulated. So they had the works of the prophets and they proclaimed Christ as the fulfillment of prophecy. And when we read the, especially the early fathers, we find that they return again and again to what we now call the proof from prophecy. They found this to be the most effective way of bringing Jesus to the world. Because even in the Greco-Roman world, uh, there was respect for the antiquity of, of, of the religion of Israel and the scriptures of Israel. There was respect because these things had lasted through ages, you know, they had stood the test of time. And all of these prophets, you know, when you did the, the math, when you did the calculus, you saw those predictions. They all came to fulfillment, to fruition in the life and death, the ministry, the resurrection, the glorification of Jesus Christ. That's a really great point for us to move into the text for today, because I'll, oh, yes. I'll tell you, Mike, one of the, it was through the, um, for me, the influence of Henry Cardinal Newman to look at the early church fathers that really opened my heart to the fullness of the faith, because mm -hmm. I, as a Presbyterian pastor for so many years, uh, almost essentially ignored the early church fathers uh, completely, except for a couple proof texts that backed up my own Presbyterian way of looking at theology. But, but one of the things that most awakened me when I read the first earliest father, the apostolic fathers, was that as a, as a New Testament Christian, is how I viewed myself, I certainly had read the Bible from cover to cover several times, but predominantly the New Testament, mm -hmm. and in many ways memorized the New Testament. Most of the Christians I knew memorized the New Testament, had in our mind specific verses of the New Testament that were our key passages, although I love Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. But, you know, I knew Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according. I knew that. John 3, 16. We knew the New Testament by heart. The early church fathers, it was the prophets. They knew the prophets by heart. Sure. The, the, the writings of Clement. He's, he's quoting, almost half the book are quotes from the Old Testament prophets. That's true. It, That's true. And, and we find so many of the, um, uh, the you know, the, 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 the oracles that are, are, are familiar to us today, the suffering servant from Isaiah, the virgin birth from Isaiah, the, uh, the, um, uh, the, the new covenant from, uh, from Jeremiah, all of these things were important to the early fathers as well. But the, the prophets we know as the minor prophets were also very important to them. And, you know, we see minor prophets and we tend to dismiss them. They say, I don't have time for the little guys. I just want to read the big guys like, like Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. But, uh, but these little books carry a lot of weight. And, and, uh, and the, the, the verse I, 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 I proposed for our discussion today comes from the last of the minor prophets at the very tail end of the Old Testament canon. And it's the book of Malachi. Um, but 
you know, that book in itself was important to our Lord, and he cited oracles from it in relation to his own ministry. So it's an important book, and his or and the pro the oracles of Malachi are important to us today as they were to those first Christians, and they were explosively important to those first Christians. And if I can just add to that importance from my background as a former Protestant pastor, <clears throat> that I have Malachi in my Bible, yeah. and I have a couple verses that I underlined and highlighted from Malachi that I, as a Presbyterian pastor, referenced often, preached on, and they're familiar verses. Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant of which you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but you, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? So I would take that passage. I mean, there's the covenant, which is very important to, to my covenantal theology. Uh, the coming of the, of the Messiah, the, the messenger beforehand, right. John the Baptist. And so all Christians love that verse. And there's a, you know, the, he is like a refiner's fire, fuller soap. We love that verse. Another verse I had underlined was the last verse. So in essence, the last verse of the old covenant is Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Such an important verse for all Christians. Yes. And even in the time of Jesus, that was the question they're asking of him, and of, are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? Because they were waiting for that to be fulfilled. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I, I noticed when I started reading the early church fathers, uh, the very earliest of the fathers, the very first Christian interpreters of the scriptures, I noticed that they quoted Malachi quite often. And they quoted this verse, 111, quite often, yeah. uh, repeatedly. And it's, it's astonishing because they seem to go, go back to this verse more than they went to the suffering servant verses or the new covenant verse or, or the, the, the verses that had to do with the, the virginal conception of our Lord. Why is it so important? Well, see, that's what I want the audience to hear what Mike just said, that there are verses in the prophets that many of us non-Catholic Christians went back to all the time. Mm -hmm. The suffering servant, maybe these right. couple of verses in Malachi. But in the early church fathers, there were other verses that they went to even more often than that, that yes. we non-Catholic Christians avoided like the plague. <laughs> so think about what's the problem here? What is the problem? This is in scripture. This is in holy writ. The earliest yeah. Christians who learned their faith from the disciples themselves, Clement, Ignatius of Antioch, uh, Irenaeus, these earliest of Christians uh, who themselves were converted by the disciples of Jesus, saw, for example, in Malachi 1.11 an important statement, more important than so many of the other ones, except that we as non-Catholic Christians avoided it. Now let yeah. me read that verse, and I can tell you right now, I never preached on this verse. I didn't have it underlined. Surprised. I didn't have it, and, and I know that I read Malachi many times when I would read through the whole Bible, and, and I don't think I taught a Bible study on this. But this verse, 
I can tell you I didn't know what to do with. Here's what it says. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name is great among the nations, and in every place incense is offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name is great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Now I'm reading the Revised Standard Version. Now before I hand this over to you, my friend, I just want to say, the beginning, for the, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name is great among the nations. Now I could have handled that as a Protestant pastor, because that was, that was what happened after Christ, the resurrection, he's alive. And the message has been carried forth, beginning in Jerusalem to Judea and all the way out. That's the Great Commission. Go ye therefore and make disciples. There it says at the beginning of that, it's just perfect. And the end of it ain't too shabby either. Because it says, for in my name is great among the nations, said the Lord of hosts. All right, the Great Commission. But the meat of the sandwich I wasn't comfortable with, my friend. And in every place incense is offered to my name and a pure offering, a pure offering. So this is sacrificial language. You know, Malachi is predicting a sacrifice that would be outside Jerusalem. And of course, we, we have to look at this text in context, right? And, 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 and look at it in the, in the context of the book itself. Because the, the, the book of Malachi was written probably in the middle of the fifth century BC in the Persian period, the period of Persian domination. Uh, so the temple had just been restored, had just been rebuilt, and the sacrifices were going full scale again. So this was a time of great rejoicing. The temple's restored in 515 BC. Everything's going right. Well, the people started to slack a little bit and the priests started to slack a little bit and they got sloppy in their sacrifices. And the people started bringing wounded animals and blind animals and crippled animals, which they weren't supposed to do, which the <laughs> law of Moses forbade. But they were doing it anyway. Well, that's because, because they, they, they had back then some of our modern politicians. <laughs> you know, hey, the Lord will never know. Just, just give them the bad stuff. That's right. <laughs> that's right. You know, it's good enough for government work. Um, and, 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 and that's the context. Malachi was speaking for the Lord who was upbraiding the priests and the people. So the, the, the book of the prophet Malachi is intensely concerned with sacrificial worship, the cult of ancient Israel. Yeah. And, it's, and it's saying, you're not doing it right. So in the middle of all of that concern, all right, there's, this very much, there, there's very much a concern for proper worship. And proper worship can only happen, sacrificial worship can only happen in Jerusalem. It can only happen on the Temple Mount. It can only happen in the temple. Malachi is a is the traditionalist of all traditionalists. So he's not suddenly, you know, saying here, hey, anything goes, you know, you can you can go worship God in Persia. No, he's saying that 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 uh, that that things aren't right here in Israel. But the day is coming when things will be right and a pure offering will be made from east to west, from the rising of the sun to its setting. So he sees a time of fulfillment, a messianic day, as, as, uh, as you noted uh, from the end of his book. So that's the context. Um, but this is a problem verse in the yeah. middle of the book. Yeah, some might, and I've, I've heard 
non-Catholic interpreters make an attempt to deal with hard verses like this by reading the verse and then giving an interpretation that isn't a direct, isn't a direct connect to the verse itself, but is a, uh -huh. a, a seemingly explanatory correction yeah, yeah. Uh, given what we know in Christ. So one might say, well, the one new sacrifice was Jesus. Mm -hmm. He was the incense that was raised to God and God's pleasing acceptance of that aroma of the sacrifice of Christ has therefore the one and only sacrifice once for all has then uh, you know, freed us from our sin. And there we are, there's a fulfillment and now we got to tell the world about it. And a Roman Catholic would agree with that. That is the once for all sacrifice. But we participate in that once for all sacrifice through the holy sacrifice of the mass. That's where it, uh, that sacrifice is represented to us. We don't repeat it. We enter into it. And, and that's, that's the way the early Christians interpreted this passage. You see, Marcus, in the ancient world, there were already people trying to explain away this verse because it was a problem, even for Jews, because, you know, they, 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 were, they were worried. You know, what, what is Malachi saying here? Is he saying that the sacrifice of the Persians is okay because they're monotheists? That doesn't sound like Malachi. Is he saying that the that the the uh, the prayer of the Jews in the diaspora is equal to the sacrificial cult in the temple? Well, that doesn't sound like Malachi either. But, you know, if you read it in context, this verse is a hard verse. Whether you're Jewish or Christian, you have to look at it and try to make sense of it as the early fathers did. Let's if I read that troubled passage. Like I said, the, the meat, the bread of the sandwich, the, uh, the outside yeah. is about yeah. the proclamation of the name of Christ amongst the Gentiles, mm -hmm. the beginning and the end of that passage. But the, the meat of it this, is this, in every place, incense is offered to my name and a pure offering. Incense is offered to my name and a pure offering. Yeah. And, and we, we began our discussion by emphasizing that the truth is that there's a continuity between the Old Testament worship and the New Testament worship. Yes. One of the reasons I believe that we see almost no reference to worship and liturgy in the, any of the books in the New Testament. There's really very little talking about what actually went on when they gathered in Acts chapter 2. You know, they got the apostles' teachings and the fellowship and, and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Well, that's the Mass. Yes. I mean, it's there if you want to see yes. it. But, but other than that, there's no reference. And so some would assume that since there's nothing there, well, then there wasn't any liturgy. Or you recognize that since Christ and his chosen apostles made no reference of changes, then what we see is their affirmation of the continuity. And so the Mass is really the continuity of the Old Testament. And so there we see the incense and the sacrifice into the part of the continuity. Yes, and you look at the book of Revelation, you can see the censers going everywhere. You know, this idea of incense used in worship. And of course, there are references to the Christian liturgy in the New Testament. First Corinthians 11 is a really good guide from St. Paul about how to say the Mass properly. He's concerned with proper worship, just as Malachi had been concerned with proper worship. If you go to Hebrews chapter 12, you find more 
uh, uh, description of Christian liturgy, the earthly liturgy, as participating in the heavenly liturgy. But then the first document we have outside of scripture, the first Christian document we have from outside scripture is the Didache. Yeah. And it's a Jewish Christian doctrine. Most of it, uh, scholars think, is from the first century, especially the liturgical portions. And there in, that four, in the 14th chapter of the Didache is a guide about you know how to celebrate the liturgy just as as saint paul had given in first corinthians and that guide tells tells about the breaking of the bread using the same phrase we find in the acts of the apostles but it culminates in a quotation actually a paraphrase of this verse from malachi so there we have it from the middle of the first century the earliest christian doc, document outside the scripture it's a guide to the liturgy and it's uh, and it's and it's invoking this passage from Malachi. Now that's the first yeah. instance we have of this invocation in a Eucharistic context, um, but it's certainly not the last. Yeah, in fact, let me read a paragraph from the Catechism, Catholic Catechism, paragraph 1350, which is talking about the movement in the celebration of the Mass. And at this point, the presentation of the offerings. Mm -hmm. It reads, then sometimes in procession, the bread and wine are brought to the altar. They will be offered by the priests in the name of Christ in the Eucharistic sacrifice in which they will become his body and blood. It is the very action of Christ at the Last Supper, taking the bread and a cup. And then there's this quote, the church alone offers this pure oblation to the creator when she offers what comes forth from his creation with thanksgiving. That's a quote from St. Irenaeus in the second century. Right, right. So we see this continuity. And yes. If you come from a non-Catholic background, you'd look at the Mass and think, boy, this is so different and wild. But in the early church fathers, it was the norm. Uh, that's right. And the continuity is there from the time of the New Testament. I mentioned the Didache, which is from the generation of the apostles. And immediately after that, we find other references to this to this oracle of Malachi 111 uh, being applied to the celebration of the mass. It's used three, four, five times in Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo the Jew. Mm. So, so he keeps going back to it, talking about about this oracle and saying that the only way you can make sense of it is by applying it to the liturgy that's instituted by Jesus Christ at the Last Supper. So we have it there in Justin Martyr repeatedly. Again, he keeps going back to it, not just once, twice, three times, four times, five times. Um, and then we find it later on in that century, as you said, in Irenaeus. It's there in, um, in Origen after that, and then through many of the fathers, once we get into the third century and the fourth century. This, this particular passage was so important to, to the fathers as it is to us today. You mentioned that it appears in the catechism. I think it appears three times in the catechism. That's right. That yeah. passage. It's, it, it's also several times in the documents of Vatican II and in the documents of the Council of Trent. So the, the Catholic Church, in emphasizing this verse of Scripture, is not pulling a verse out of Scripture as a proof text of what it now does. The Catholic Church is following in the tradition of the earliest believers of the Church, carrying over the That's continuity right. of the celebration of 
the Old Testament sacrifice as it's fulfilled in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That's right. And this is not um, a repetition of the sacrifice. It's a representation of the sacrifice. It's where we check in. You know, we are there with him on Calvary and, and we are being washed in the blood of the lamb. This is the purpose of the liturgy. It's so that um, so that the, the, the fruits of Calvary can be applied to Christians in every generation, in every place. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name is great among the nations. And there's a great universality in, in, that, in that oracle. It's predicting a time when there would be a when, when God's chosen people would be all over the place, from the rising of the sun to its setting, from east to west and round the clock, this offering would be made because it would be offered everywhere on earth. And a part of that offering would be incense. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, I mean, uh, which has always been part of the Christian ritual worship. Yeah. I mean, for many of our non-Christian, our, our non-Catholic Christian brothers and sisters who've whose incense over the years has been dropped from their worship and then they see Catholics, they don't understand it anymore. But, but just the use of incense, Old Testament to new, makes sense of the gifts of the Magi. I mean, we see yes. this wonderful continuity as, yes. a, as a symbol of our communication with God. And, and and of the book of Revelation, and it makes sense of the book of Revelation. The worship we see there in heaven, we imitate here on earth. So we're like those angels who are waving those censers and golden bowls, which hold the incense. And you know, Marcus, if you go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art or any great museum that has a collection of um, of of what's called material culture from the early Christians, you go into that room and you see censers thoroughbles from the early church because these are the things that survive that endure through the ages because the, the early Christians wanted their worship to be like the worship they saw in the book of Revelation the worship they saw through the eyes of John the seer in heaven yeah. it always reminds me of when our Lord would heal somebody and when the healing was over he didn't tell the person, now, I, what I want you to do is to break from everything you've ever done and to go out there and gather a couple other people, start a Bible study in your own new little church. Every time he healed someone, what's the first thing he told them to do? Go tell the priests. That's right. <laughs> go tell the priests. Yeah. Continuity. Yes. And, and he himself continued to worship in the temple. All the early Christians continued until they were kicked out until the yes. gospel was rejected by the Jewish leadership. But, yes. the, but there was and no statement by our Lord to quit going to temple, to quit going. And then the temple fell, of right. course, in 70 AD. And when Justin Martyr talks about this, this verse, Malachi 111, and he's, he's talking, it's in a dialogue with a Jew, with a rabbi. And, and when he brings it up repeatedly, it's because he wants to make sense of this. And he believed that this oracle referred to the time when the temple would fall and the walls would be blown out, so to speak. And, and that pure offering would be, would, would be made not just on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, but all throughout the world. There would be a universality to it. And another way of saying that with the, from the Greek root is Catholicity. 
it would be Catholic, yeah. universal throughout the earth, throughout time. Yeah, and the, well, Michael, and you know the beauty of that, and you've had a chance to travel a little bit of the world, and so have I. And the beauty is that, that we know today that this verse is fulfilled in so many ways, no matter where we go in the yes. world, no matter what time zone we're in, it may be in a different language, yes. uh, but we know what's going on. It's not just because we see the incense being used, uh, but we see our Lord's body and blood being, being raised before us for our adoration and our reception and our unity that we share uh, as we see it proclaimed in this wonderful verse that we see fulfilled and we pray that our separated brethren will come to appreciate its fulfillment in the church. Yes, yes, I'd, I'd say go to those verses in the, in, in the oracle, but then look at the way the early Christians interpreted those verses. Uh, look at Justin Martyr, you know, look at the Didache, you know, look, look at Irenaeus, uh, look at Origen and, and the way all of these men interpreted uh, that verse. There was a consistency through time and in every place. They saw this applied to the mass and we still do today. We have faithfulness to the tradition we've received from the apostles through these men, the early fathers of the church. In fact, I was going to close with a statement made by John Paul II. In fact, the very first thing that he wrote, the first line of the first paragraph of the catechism, mm -hmm. John Paul says, guarding the deposit of faith is the mission which the Lord entrusted to his church in which he fulfills in every age. Guarding the deposit. That's what the church, not inventing That's something right. new, not coming up with it, not following custom, or mm -hmm. con, uh, conforming to culture, uh, transforming culture by preserving that which we were given way in the beginning, including the wonderful worship that we share with the early church. Absolutely. Michael, my friend, thank you for joining us. Uh, hey, thank you for having me, Marcus. This has been great. For the audience, you, you've written a couple of books specifically on the early church fathers. Can you, can you rattle off a couple of names there for the audience? Uh, the, the, the one uh, that's, that, that most people, that, the, the one that seems to resonate with most people is simply called The Fathers of the Church. Um, I wrote another one after that called The Mass of the Early Christians, yeah. which looked at the ritual public worship of the early church. Um, I have another one called Roots of the Faith. Most recently, I've, I've written one about um, uh, the way the, the early Christians looked at the mother of Jesus, and it's called Keeping Mary Close. It, it's just recently out from Servant Books. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much, Mike. And again, audience, fathersofthechurch.com if you want to find out more about Mike and his work. Thank you, Mike. Uh, look forward to having you back on the program sometime. And God bless you. Anytime, Mark. And your continued writing. Thank you for joining us on Deep in Scripture. Again, if you want to find out more about us, go to deepinscripture.com or go to chnetwork.org or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. It's been a joy to be with you today. God bless. See you again next week.